This is the Gender Justice Brief, a podcast of gender justice. We fight for gender equity by breaking down legal, structural, and cultural barriers and expanding protections. We want to see all people thrive, regardless of their gender, gender expression, and sexual orientation. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Gender Justice Briefs. I'm your host, Erin Hart, Communications Director at Gender Justice. And I'm really excited to have our legal director, Jess Braverman, back on the podcast after a little break. Hey, Jess. Hey, Erin. Hey, Phil. Hey, listeners. And as Jess already alluded, we have a brand new guest on the show, Phil Duran from Rainbow Health. Hi, Phil. Hello to everybody. Good to be here. Can I yeah. can I tell everyone something about Phil, which is Phil, Phil, I feel like when I want to cause trouble and I want to figure out the best way to cause trouble, Phil's at the top of my list. I'm like, what sorts of legal shenanigans can I pull here? When that's the question, it's I'm always like, let me just start by putting like Phil Duran in the two line to an email and we'll get there. <laughs> it's a very specialized consulting work that I yeah. do, really. In addition to this illustrious consulting work that you do for Jess, why don't you tell us a little bit, Phil, about your role at Rainbow Health? Sure. So just for folks who don't know, Rainbow Health focuses on LGBTQ health, HIV, and aging in both contexts. Like Jess, I'm an attorney. I've been with Rainbow Health for about five years. I was with Outfront Minnesota for about 18 years prior to that. I wear a number of different hats at Rainbow Health, but I think one of the things that is key to the work I do and key to the extremely valued collaboration that we have with gender justice in a number of different ways is that I represent a number of trans and non-binary folks who are trying to access gender-affirming care, and then they run into coverage problems, insurance issues. And sometimes it's Medicare or Medicaid. It can be private insurance. It can be whatever. And so we try and take those cases on and get people across the finish line and get them the care they need. And so that's one of the things I've been doing for a number of reasons. It's a lot of fun. Excellent. And I forgot to mention at the top, because I was so excited to have you both here, that we are here today to talk about recently, very successfully settled lawsuit, Christina Lusk versus Minnesota Department of Corrections. And what that means for transgender rights, especially for folks in government custody. Now that we've done our intros, let's talk a little bit about the case and where it started. Maybe I should turn to you for that, Jess. You can turn to me. It started with my friend actually at the public defender's office, Robin Gordon, who I talked to this morning. Robin was Christina's public defender. So when I was at the public defender's office, I knew about Christina's situation. I, that's where I was before I started at Gender Justice. And so Robin was advocating for Christina, but Christina ended up in, in a men's facility nonetheless. But Robin did an excellent job. She's a great attorney. And so I would say the case really started there. From there, it went probably maybe to Phil. Is that right? That sounds right. This is. I think I sent it to you before I knew you. <laughs> that could be. Yeah. The reality is, and I think Christina, as is true of many people, has been struggling for quite some time to get access to care and other kinds of certain circumstances that that she needs. And so, yeah, it's it is a little bit lost in the mists of time. But she was somebody we worked with a couple of years ago, and on some issues that ultimately got resolved in the litigation. Okay. Yeah. And then it, what happened next was that Christina actually on her own filed a charge of discrimination 
with the Minnesota Department of Human Rights and then reached out to, I believe, Phil to, for representation. And then Phil reached out to me. I believe that's how it happened. We represented Christina together at the department, but she actually initiated that that complaint. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's just been multifaceted. And I think the outcome of the case really addresses so much of it. And it's a great outcome for Christina. And certainly one of the things that we'll be keeping an eye on is how does it actually play out? My, my sense of things is that the settlement says DOC will have certain policies in place. That's great. And my experience tells me that DOC can have any number of things written down. And the real question is, how does it actually play out in the life of a particular incarcerated person? And so they, those two things don't always line up. So, you know, this case didn't just involve Christina, a transgender woman being put in a men's facility. She was also denied access to competent gender affirming health care. They were using her dead name, which is like a former male name she hasn't used for a long time, but they were forcing her to use it at the DOC. And so this case of, involved a lot of layers of discrimination. She was and she wasn't just in a men's facility, like she was housed in a locked dorm room with seven men. That's and Christina is a transgender woman like she has breasts. She's she's been a, she's lived authentically as a woman for years. And that was just really hard for her and really terrible. And we know she's not the only one. Oh, absolutely. And it's just astonishing to think about how much effort had to go into simply getting DOC to use her legal name. This isn't just some name she picked up and just uses informally. It's a court ordered legal name. You don't get any better than that. And yet it took years to get DOC simply to give her the dignity of treating, of using that her name. And that's the kind of system, unfortunately, that we're dealing with. I remember it, we worked with another individual, a trans woman, and DOC has this thing called the incarcer Challenge Incarceration Project. It's what they call boot camp. It's an intensive program and you can get out early. And one of the folks that we worked with several years ago was a trans woman and she had long hair and men and women can take part in this thing. But if you're a man and you take part in it, they shave your hair down to about a quarter of an inch. A woman can wear a, essentially like a baseball cap. And our person was treated simply as a man and said, you have to shave your head to a quarter inch, which simply made her look like a man. And that was exactly and the opposite direction that we wanted to go in. And it had to go up to an assistant commissioner to simply let her wear a cap, a wow. cap. That's what we were arguing about. Wow. And, that, and so no, I'm just going to say, that's the kind of system that we're dealing with is incredibly rigid. Okay. For people who are, have not been following the issues closely and are not sure and aware of the policies of the Minnesota DOC before this settlement. So what you're saying is the DOC has like a long history of not honoring the legal names of transgender inmates, of providing them with the types of accommodations that they should be provided legally. The DOC has been making placement decisions based on genitalia, and that became clear in the course of our investigations in this case, in the course of our litigation. If you ask them, they may deny it, but I, we, we took numerous depositions, we collected numerous documents, and we would have had no issue proving that, I believe, in our case. That's not only a violation of the Minnesota Human Rights Act. It's a PREA violation. You're not supposed to make placement decisions based solely on genitalia. We don't reduce people to their genitalia. Jess, could I stop you there? Could you tell us what is PREA? 
Is yeah. that a federal law or? PREA is a federal law. It's the Prison Rape Elimination Act, and it's meant to it's meant to prevent sexual abuse in prisons. Whether it's effective is a different question, but it does it, it, in the act it, it, there's acknowledgement that trans people are particularly vulnerable in incarcerated settings to being victims of sexual abuse, and so. As a result, there's specific rules about placement of transgender inmates. There's guidelines and all of that. And under PREA, you're not supposed to place people based on their genitalia. PREA is not the only law that relates to prisons. We want our case under the Minnesota Human Rights Act and the Minnesota Constitution. But PREA has all these things that go along with it. Like they have investigators and auditors come to prisons to make sure they're compliant. And so treat PREA like we at least need to do this. And it's a really low bar. And I would say it's not even, I would say the bar is actually higher than that. There's more they're required to do than just PREA. But a lot of prisons and jails treat those requirements as, as long as I'm doing this, I'm fine. And they were not even in my, right, in my view, they were not even compliant with that. And so they were placing people based on genitalia, even though that's, their policy on paper didn't say that, but it came like it was apparent before the case, it became even more apparent as we litigated. I know. Um, and it's, they've all, DOC unfortunately also has a history of simply ignoring the policies that they implement. And I just, one of the things I just, now this is going back a ways, but it, it very a while back, DOC's policy said, we don't, we're not going to initiate any kind of gender affirming care. I'm paraphrasing it after a person comes into the system. If you were on hormones when you come in, we'll keep you on hormones, but you're sure not going to start afterwards. And they certainly didn't want to think about surgery. We worked with, this is in a past job, worked with DOC to update that. And they said, no, we provide care throughout the period of the incarceration. And we said, we need this because you're getting these people who are not being allowed to begin gender affirming care. And they're like, yeah, we, we don't want that. So they had the policy in place. We provide the care throughout. And then they kept denying it, saying you weren't on this when you came in, so you're still not going to you're not going to start with us, even though that was exactly the point of updating the policies. This is not a new, not a new problem at all. And as much as I applaud the work of gender justice, Ms. Kaplan, in this, my my cynical sense is this still isn't going to be over, and it's going to require a lot of people keeping a very close eye on DOC and monitoring implementation. Yeah, I. I agree with Phil. Like sometimes you you can win a lawsuit. It could be a really big change. It could be it could lead to great policies. It can lead to all this stuff. But then it's okay. Are these policies really going to be implemented as you intended? Is it that's always a challenge? And I think that is the challenge in this case moving forward as well. Like making sure all these great changes that we were able to get are actually implemented and not just like sitting there on paper. Right. It's community engagement. It's going to be organizations like Rainbow Health and Gender Justice and Outbrot and the ACLU, all of them making very clear that in their various ways, they will hold DOC accountable. Said, this is what you agreed to do, and this is what we expect you to do, and here's what's going to happen if you don't do those things. And so it's it, it, the problem with advocating for folks in, in prisons and so on is that they're out of sight for the public and therefore out of mind. And for a lot of folks, you're in prison, you must deserve to be there, that sort of thing. And so it's very easy to just ignore what goes on and just say, you get what you deserve or whatever. And that's the kind of mindset that allows these kinds of problems to fester. And so right. to the extent that gender justice took a nod and fought him to the bottom, fantastic. And two thumbs up. Yeah. And 
the we did bring we raised that issue in court too, where basically we said to the judge one of our hearings, this court would never allow someone to misname and misgender Christina while we're here in these proceedings. So why does the DOC think that this court's going to let them do it as soon as she's no longer here in court? Once the doors close, the court's just going to be like, okay, whatever. We don't think the court is going to do that. And the judge, I think, took that to heart. And I think, but I also think it's right. Like, why is it okay in one government building and not, it's just not okay ever. Particularly Um, since the name was ordered by a state court. In so many ways, the situation was just so palpably absurd and painful. It's heartening to see the outcome. I also want to make sure someone mentioned this. We, on our litigation, we co-counseled with the law firm Robbins Kaplan. They were absolutely incredible to partner with. They, they were just fantastic. They were passionate about the case. They did amazing work on it. We worked closely together throughout the litigation. And I do just want to make sure that we give them that recognition. Like they were fantastic partners. They jumped in. I mentioned this case to someone at the firm and they were like, oh, I absolutely want to join you on that. And within a week, there they were. They were just phenomenal. And so I want to make sure that we do acknowledge the incredible work of Robbins Kaplan. Excellent. And we will even link to their website in the show notes. Absolutely. As podcasts do. So Phil, I was thinking about something that you said in terms of like community engagement. I feel like in some of my own circles, like talking about the case or talking with the press about Christina's case and what she went through, oftentimes the first question that someone would ask me is, what's she in for? And my response was like, that doesn't matter. So I feel like, I'm sure you both know, like just simply being in prison puts or incarcerated puts one in such a situation. It's really hard to advocate or to explain to folks that you still have rights. I I agree. It shouldn't matter what she's in for. Like we believe we believe this is her. And but I separate from that, like she is in for substance abuse issues. And I don't know how it's helpful to her, to society, to the state of Minnesota, like to anyone to take someone with a substance abuse issue, put them in prison in like a men's prison, lock them up, deny them health care. Who is this for? It's for no one. It's not helpful. It's in, it's inhumane. And so that shouldn't be the reason we care, right? It's not, oh, it's a nonviolent effect or whatever. It's something we don't find morally objectionable. You know, I don't think that should be the like litmus test of do we care. Separate right. from that, though, like how are we treating people with like substance issues? Like th- this is just bananas. Yeah. Yeah. So much of this, of course, is driven by the fact that prisons and jails are typically so incredibly gendered and sex segregated. And we have a long conversation about why that is, but whether it's for understandable reasons or not, or it's a mix or whatever, that's the reality that we're dealing with is that there is the men's prison over here and the women's prison over there. And it's an incredibly rigid and binary system. And it's based on control. And when you introduce trans or non-binary people into that system, people like Christina Lusk, she doesn't neatly fit those categories. What do you do? And to the extent that advocates or the prisoners themselves are saying, I need to be treated in this particular way, it threatens the sense of control. This isn't a, this isn't a resort. You do what we tell you. And, but when a prisoner asserts themselves for really anything and essentially prevails, you're pushing back successfully against the control mechanism of the system. And so you've got these two layers where 
this is really just a very difficult situation and we don't have great answers. It's just, and so I, I'm hopeful that this works out for Christina. She's out of the men's prison, which is great. I'm hopeful that her reception in Shakopee will be more positive. And I can also envision that there will be other prisoners at Shakopee who will say something to the effect of, why is there a man here? And go down that road. And so I don't know that the drama is over. It's just, may, it may shift a little bit. I, I will, I'll say though, Christina is in Shakopee. She said that her initial reception was really great. Someone even said to her, glad you finally made it. She said so far she's felt welcome. She hasn't had any issues with any of the other inmates. Everyone's been like kind. And um, I hope that, yeah, I hope that continues. But so far she's really thrilled. She's the first trans woman who's been placed in the proper facility. All that being said is I do want to just like name one thing in this case, which is this case is like amazing and a huge bummer too, because like she's in prison and she shouldn't be in prison. So it's like a real win would be that there's, there is no Shakopee, there is no Moose Lake, like we're not putting people in cages. So I just want to make sure we have that out there. Yeah. But in terms of she is in prison. So like it's from a harm reduction angle. I like, it is a really great outcome. I know she feels really proud of herself for advocating. I know this because she's told me, I'm not like projecting onto her. I know she feels really proud of herself for advocating. She feels really proud of herself for being the first. She has a really great attitude about like she went into it thinking some people just need to get to know me. But she said, but then it turned out everyone was just okay with it. But like I said, I hope that continues. But so far, so good. Yeah. Just, we have been referencing a lot of the win of the case. Can you, and Phil has expressed his healthy skepticism of whether or not policy changes it's, will actually be implemented. It's, no, it's fair. It's fair. Yeah. Which is fair. Yeah. But can you, for our listeners, go through, you know, what policy changes the Department of Corrections have said they will make as a result of settling the lawsuit? Yeah. So... The, the one big one is that they were not providing proper gender affirming care to inmates. They were just rejecting requests for surgery. And the reasons they rejected Christina in particular were just absurd. I'm pretty sure that like until we gave them the medical records proving it, they didn't even believe she had a breast augmentation, which she did in 2018. But it was like it was a mix of like incompetence in reviewing the records like inexcusable incompetence and then just not wanting to do it and finding any reason not to do it and coming up with just ridiculous excuses that have absolutely nothing to do with the appropriate standards of care. And so we got them to put in their policies that they're going to be compliant with the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, that's WPATH. They put out standards of care and the DOC is going to put in their policies that they're going to comply with the WPATH standards of care. and. They're going to hire someone on staff who's a WPATH certified provider who can actually competently assess people's needs. And so that's huge. So they, they already, this is medically necessary care and they need to provide that to transgender inmates as well. For Christina specifically, they are going to help her get that surgery if she's still, sometimes there's a wait, right? So if she's still in custody when she gets it, they'll take care of it as they do with any other inmate getting medically necessary care. If she's out, they'll cover the out-of-pocket costs if there are any after her insurance coverage, which, which is just fantastic. In so that's the, those are the biggest healthcare changes. For housing, they're going to stop 
<laughs> They've never admitted that they make placement decisions based on genitalia, but it is apparent to me that they do. I think they understand that they're going to get, if they continue to do that, they're going to get sued again. So they're going to actually implement the policy they have, which is to approve inmates' request, like placement requests unless they have a really specific reason that they can articulate why this particular person can't go. And before they would say things like trans women in a men's prison, the women in the prison will just be overcome and they'll all faint and like th there'll be violence and whatever. It was just this kind of nonsense. I'm exaggerating just so I don't get like sued. I'm exaggerating here, but they would basically say we can't possibly do this. It's so dangerous. And they would be outright saying that they cannot say that anymore. That's just it's just nonsense. And it also they also were disregarding the fact that transgender women in custody are victims of abuse. You're, it was just so bad. So they're going to actually implement the policy they have, which is to put people in the right facilities unless they can really articulate like this particular person. <laughs> and that's one area where, yeah, we're going to have to keep an eye on it, right? Because if they can come mm -hmm. up with excuses, they can come up with excuses. And that's why we think that like monetary portions of settlements are important, right? It's not that you're just in it for the money. It's literally mm -hmm. if people, do, if they don't have to pay out, Okay, so they had to write a new policy. And then if they get sued again, they'll be like, oh, we'll do this. You have to have a monetary payment. You have to have some incentive for them to be like, we can't get sued again. Yeah. And so that's a huge role of a monetary payment. And so we are going to be keeping an eye on that piece. But that's a housing change. They are also, the as Phil mentioned, with boot camp, the challenge incarceration program, mm -hmm. they're not going to have haircut requirements for trans inmates anymore. They're not going to dead name people. So even when trans people legally change their name if if they did that this is a little hard to explain but they would use people's original commitment names no matter like how long ago they were and even if they'd been legally changed but it's actually like harmful to trans people to use their former names and so it was causing them a lot of stress and emotional distress like serious emotional distress and they had an exception where it's like for safety reasons, we'll, we will grant the name changes, but they weren't applying that to trans inmates. So even though it was causing like severe emotional distress, they were just, no, you can wait. And so they were dead naming <laughs> Miss Lusk. And so they're not going to do that anymore. They're going to approve the name changes. And so those are the biggest changes. There were a few more, but the, these, these are pretty big policy changes. But like Phil said, we need to make sure they're actually implemented. And Phil, do you or Jess have other transgender inmates in the DOC who could benefit now from this policy? You know, it was reported that DOC acknowledged 48 different trans people. Now that I don't know that they broke that down to trans women versus trans men, non-binary, and I'm not sure they specified where they are in the transition process. We argue about medication, we argue about surgery, whatever. But plainly there are, there is a population. And they are informed about these things. They're, they know what's going on. And yeah, I absolutely envision that we're going to continue to see see these things happen coming forward. Particularly, I, ha I simply haven't looked at just, you may know off the top of your head, I don't know that I've seen any actual revised policies following the settlement. Those are we available online. Yeah, the DOC policies are publicly available online. I don't know that those, the... Settlement was like just executed and the yeah. case was just dismissed. So I think it's just a matter of it being too soon, but th right. they should be updated online. Yeah, exactly. And those will get circulated. And so people will say, hey, this is this applies to me and I need this. I'm aware of another individual in the system who's working with an attorney here in town. 
And it was, again, the kind of that, I think there's a variety of issues, but one of them was the dead name issue. And that attorney had to go to a judge twice to get orders, correcting some of the documents so that DOC would finally be to, to call the person their legal name. So I, hopefully this, that will be the easiest fix throughout their system. But I think one of the things that I perceive that DOC has done over the years is they can, they know exactly when those folks are going to leave the system. And the more they can screw around and throw sand in the gears and just drag their heels and wait the clock out. Christina's out, I forget, just at sometime in 24. They're not subtle about it. Like for Christina, they literally said she can pursue this when she's released. And from the date they said that right. to her release date was five years. Yeah. <laughs> That's not how you treat medically necessary health care. Of course not. And uh, But I think even so, I, there's somebody who's going to be out next year, whether it's Christina or somebody else. And DOC is going to be well aware of when that is. And I suspect there will be folks who just find ways to slow the process down so that by the time they're ready to go, oh, you're released and you're not our problem anymore. I think we're still going to be seeing circumstances like that. But this settlement, this outcome, I think gives those folks an opportunity to a foot in the door to, to advocate for themselves and to get where they need to go. And for their lawyers. <laughs> yeah. Where does this settlement put Minnesota on the sort of national landscape of how other states are treating transgender inmates? I, I think we're behind a number of states. We were the first to expressly protect transgender people in our anti-discrimination laws, but we're like certainly not the first to get that right. And so there are other states that have been doing a better job on this. And so I think we're a little late to the game here. But I don't know of another settlement that involves like the DOC explicitly saying that they're going to be WPATH compliant. And I think that's really great because according to WPATH, you provide people in prison the same levels of care that you provide them outside prison. And so if surgery is medically necessary, it's medically necessary. It's not, oh, but they're in prison. And so that piece is a really big deal. And so in other ways, I think we're behind. Like, I don't know a lot of systems that were like forcibly dead naming everyone for no reason. Like, that's that's wild that we were doing that here in Minnesota. And I think we're probably like behind everyone in that sense. Like not wow. even using people's proper names when they've been legally changed is just a wild way to treat people. To add to that as well, in, in a number of states, there have been Eighth Amendment cases where the argument essentially is by denying this individual medically necessary care, you are engaging in cruel and unusual punishment. And the courts have been pretty receptive to that. But I'm not recalling any cases of that sort, either using the Federal Eighth Amendment or using the corollary language in the Minnesota Constitution, serving that in the trans context. I may have been in elsewhere. It wouldn't shock there, me if it came up like in the COVID context, but not from a trans standpoint. There, there have been, but not in Minnesota. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not in Minnesota. Yeah. So our constitution, the federal constitution says cruel and unusual. Ours, mm -hmm. the Minnesota one says cruel or unusual, which should actually provide greater protection. So that's like another reason why we shouldn't be behind on this, because right. under yeah. the federal st standard, you have to prove both like cruel and unusual. In Minnesota, you have to prove one or the other. It's either cruel or unusual. So that should be a lower standard to meet. And so that that's another play. We, we really should have been ahead of the game there. No, I agree. I think and so. That's why I think this is a groundbreaking effort, even if it didn't end up going to the Minnesota Supreme Court to prove an interpretive thing about what does the Minnesota Constitution mean, blah, blah. I think the path is clear in the event that it needs to happen again, and preferably it shouldn't. Preferably DOC 
deals with these people in a forthright way and follows appropriate policies and so on and so forth so that they don't end up having to litigate that. But as we have covered, I'm slightly cynical and we'll see that it's begun. In or like under another administration in Minnesota, like for example, if we have a different administration, different political views and values, could you see that these policy changes being reversed? No. They could try, but they could try. But if they violate the settlement, we can go back to court. So I guess they could do what they want, theoretically, in the sense that anyone could do what they want, but then they could get arrested or sued or they can't get arrested. I just mean in life in general. Like I could go to a bank and steal a billion dollars, but if I did that, I'd probably get arrested. So yes, they theoretically could change the policies for the worse, but we could also allege that it's a violation of the settlement agreement. Yeah, it's the question that I go back to is, I think Jess is right. They can't say, we're not going to follow WPATH anymore. That's crazy. Because they agreed that they will do that. But, you know, maybe they would interpret WPATH in a different way and say, we're following WPATH. It's just that it doesn't, we, our interpretation of it doesn't lead to the interpretation you want. Tough luck. And so, yeah, I can envision that a shift in, in administration could be different. I, I think we're dealing in a way with the flip side of this in the sense that Paul Schnell, the commissioner of public safety, our commissioner of corrections, excuse me, is, mm-hmm. is probably a pretty decent guy and probably personally very receptive and recognizes the ultimate rightness of the outcome. I don't, my personal thought is I doubt that the problem is really Paul Schnell. The problem is a bit lower. And those are people who are there when this administration's out, the next administration's in, the administration after that. So it's, those are the folks we need to really kind of keep an eye on. It's not necessarily the commissioners or the governors. It's the people a little bit further down. Yeah, in the institutions. Yeah, because there will be people in DOC and in every department who say, I've been here for 20 years. I've seen all these governors come and go. I'm going to see you go too. I'm just going to keep doing what I do. It happens. It's a real thing. And it's it's also real for DOC. And they're not unique in that. Yeah, I would say the DOC gets sued a lot because inmates, or incarcerated people have a lot of time and a lot of really valid complaints, many of which are like extremely valid. And so people do bring, they're called like pro se lawsuits. Like people bring a lot of lawsuits suing the DOC without a lawyer. And so the DOC is really used to being sued and having those lawsuits dismissed. They have a lot of really strong arguments at their disposal, one of which is immunity, right? They can argue as the government, we can't be sued for X, Y, and Z thing. We get immunity. And agencies like the DOC get a lot of dismissals, a lot of successful immunity claims. And so while they're used to being sued, they're not used to actually having to pay out and make changes. And I think, I hope that this does, this should have an impact because it's, I'm sure there were many people at the DOC, like everyone's aware of this case. I'm sure most expected it at some point to be dismissed, but the court did not dismiss it. And they did, I think, at some point try to get it dismissed on immunity, right? They, they tried to get it dismissed on a number of grounds, including immunity. That's correct. And, and that's not necessarily indicative of much of anything. If you sue any agency, they're going to come up with 17 different reasons why you can't possibly do that. It's their job. Part of what they need to do is defend themselves from lawsuits. And they did that. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily reflect anyone's like personal position, but they they did litigate the case. And I think many people expected it 
to be dismissed because they're so used to be having cases against them be dismissed. But I think the court got this one right and wouldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And part of it, of course, I, I suspect is that because correct me if I'm wrong, just the other side was the attorney general's office. It wasn't just some attorneys at DOC. At the MDHR stage, it was attorneys at the DOC. And right. if you recall, their responses were like pretty offensive. Oh, wow. Like they were like, could have been written in 1980, like very mm-hmm. shockingly offensive, at least to me. I don't, mm-hmm. I, don't I, I think to you too, Phil. <laughs> yeah. Then the AG's office took the case. I don't think the arguments they were making at the MDHR level that the DOC attorneys made would have been effective in court. I think the court would have also found them to be offensive and retrograde and sure. distasteful. Maybe I don't know the right word, but. And the only reason I'm bringing this up and thank you for reminding me how this all played out is that it's we've seen it in the abortion situation when what gender justice litigated. There is the sense among some Minnesotans that the attorney general was like, yeah, sure, that's unconstitutional, let us know, and didn't really stand up and didn't really defend and really didn't make an effort. And there are some people for whom that is a really problematic thing. And so they tried to fight and intervene, do all this nonsense. I think that the attorney general's office did, you know, they they made this honest effort to litigate this thing, whether they believed in it or not, it was whatever, but they, they made it a real defense. And so it insulates it from any of that sort of conversation that says Keith Ellis and he just you know, threw in the towel. It, it, you know, yeah. I, and I can even spell that out. We had to go through the MDHR process, pull that, file a complaint in court, litigate a motion to dismiss that complaint. That was like pretty thorough. We had a hearing on that. We were successful, but they made they made strong arguments. We then hired two experts and submitted expert reports, and we took a number of depositions, I want to say five or six, and then we engaged a professional mediator. Like, this wasn't like, this was a real litigation, which like Phil said, but regardless of individual people's positions, right, the role of the attorney general's office is to defend agencies, and that's what they did here, and that is their role. And so I don't know, people can say what they want, but this case was absolutely litigated, much like our abortion case as well. That was like, double the experts, double the deposition that there were like motions to dismiss four rounds of summary judgment briefing, multiple appeals. People do like to say, oh, I think what happened is like we're so good at our job that we make it look easy. And then people are like, oh, you just showed up and filed in one when like really it's a lot of work. We're litigating these cases. A lot of work and a lot of time. I know that you are both very busy and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about the case and the settlement and what it means for transgender rights. Before we wrap up for today, do either of you have any final words or anything you feel like we didn't touch on in our discussion today? Just that like the real goal is decarceration. Let's get people out of cages. This is ridiculous already. We are not like helping anyone. A lot of what we do at Gender Justice, I think, is like harm reduction, right? There's a terrible system and we try to make things better for people within that system. And I think Christina really did something brave and difficult and hard and she was really successful. And we're just like so proud of her. We're so proud to have represented her. And I know like she unfortunately can't be on this podcast, but I just talked to her today. She's really happy with the outcome of the case and really proud of herself as she should be. How about you, Phil? I just, I think that what Jess is saying is absolutely true, that every time you get involved with trying to make an improvement to prison policy, there's a degree to which you are tacitly, at least, endorsing the idea of prisons. 
And whether you're a full-on abolitionist or something south of that, there is that. And you do have to navigate that. I think if Christina had called or any other person called and said, here's the situation I'm facing today, and the response is, you know what, we're going we're gonna to launch a campaign to abolish prisons. We'll call you back in 20, 30 years. That's not going to solve that person's problem today. And there needs to be a both and. There needs to be both these kinds of cases where you're fixing the problem that exists today, as well as a much broader conversation in society about the role, if any, of prisons in criminal justice or public safety or what have you. And we have to do both. Definitely. Thank you both so much. So we'll have to have you back on the podcast sometime when you are back to causing trouble with Jess and your consulting <laughs> business. I've already talked to Jess about where I think the next level of trouble is and she's I'm in. So. Yeah. Oh, no. It'll happen. Well, stay tuned. Oh, yeah. Both excited and afraid. Thank you, Jess, for being with us. And yeah, hopefully one day Christina will also be able to join. So, Terrific. all right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Gender Justice Brief. This show is produced by Gunter Janel and Audra Griegas. To keep up with our work in real time, be sure to check out the show notes for where to find us on the web, social media, and to sign up for text updates. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share to help us spread our message. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.